Welcome to Good Looking Out, episode number 12, a podcast about what to eat, watch, read, and listen to, because life is too short for bad shit. I'm Eric. I'm Jason. So what's up, Santos? What's new? Oh, man. Summer's here, man. It's fucking nice. Um, Just took a bike ride here, and it's killer, man. It's a good time to be in Minneapolis. It is a really good time. The mosquitoes are just barely starting to come out. Yeah. Noticed a couple when I've like had the girls at the park in the evenings and stuff like that. But it's still like it's not too hot, not too humid. You know, it's fucking go- magical, gorgeous man. weather. Yeah, it's amazing. And you write like, you know, it's the lakes and the the like. I'm starting, you know, now after being here for nearly four years, like I'm just starting to like. It's clicking. Yeah, man, it's just starting to like. You know, you look around, you're like, holy shit. Well, this is America. This is what you're after. Is fucking lakes. There's People on kayaks and riding bikes, and it's, you know, you're fucking living your life. It's great. It's it's fucking nice, man. And this episode of Good Looking Out is sponsored by the Minnesota Board of Tourism. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Talk to me in, in fucking February. Yeah, no kidding. Right. Um, Fe- but, yeah, things are good, man. Everything's good. I, I, had a, um, I had a bad hair day today. I didn't realize it until I was leaving work. I looked at my hair and it wasn't good. I get fucking. I told you I'm trying to grow it out. I'm trying to get a little bit of longer hair and it's uh-huh. fucking with me a little bit. There's a lot of gray up there. A lot of fucking gray. I don't know, man. I think it looks pretty good. You do? Yeah. Well, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't worry about it. Well, thank you. That's good. Yeah, because I'm vain as fuck, man. I, I, I am. <laughs> I was looking. I am. I was fucking looking at myself before I left. I was like. Should I cut this shit or I don't know? You nah. know, fuck it, right? Let it roll for a while. I, I think Boom. it's looking good. Done, done. What's going on with you? Oh, you know, weekend. Yeah. Just chilling out with the girls. Um, Vivian took a spill on the deck last night. So the girls, we have this awning that spans our whole deck, and it's got this, like, metal lattice work that's solid as hell. So they hooked a rope up to it, and they kind of swing back and forth. <laughs> so Vivian was swinging on it. Got twisted up in the air and just, like, hit the deck, like, oh. on the side of her head. So she had, like, her ear was, like, all cut up in the side of her head. And, you know, like, when you get a, even a tiny cut on your head, it just bleeds like crazy. Oh, so she was really freaked out about it last night because she's been having these nightmares about her head, like, getting cracked open for what? some reason. So it was, like, this oh, for self-fulfilling <laughs> prophecy almost. Um, so she was freaked out about that. But then this morning she, like, really wanted to keep the T-shirt uh, that had all the blood on it, and she really, really was hoping it would still be bleeding by Halloween because she wanted to be all bloody. For oh Halloween. my god! So, <laughs> How funny! Yeah. So I, I think she's pretty much recovered. <laughs> yeah, man. Fucking weekend. I'm gonna grill some steaks tonight. Nice. Um, yeah. Smoke yeah. cigars. Start smoking cigars. Really? Did I, t- did I tell you about this? I, I am not into cigars at all. No. The smell of it just grosses me out. Yeah, I never was really either. Um, like, a few times tried it. So what's the appeal? Tell me, what is it about smoking a cigar that really does it for you? I don't know. Um, like, all right, the, the, my, my biggest draw to it is that um, there's, and this is uh, up front, don't, no cigar, don't fucking talk to me if you're like a cigar aficionado and telling me, like, you know, of course, that's what you love about cigar. But for me, like, it's nice to be able to do nothing else for 20 minutes or half an hour because you're not smoking a cigar inside. I'm not, you know, right. I'm not fucking Churchill. I'm not walking around my house and in my bathrobe smoking a cigar. You know what I mean? You're outside and, you know, 
Um, 20 minutes is like, uh, and you, I normally will smoke one at night, you know, when everybody's kind of gone to bed. And you sit down and you kind of just, it's um, a little bit of a, I don't know, meditation sort mm-hmm. of exercise where you kind of, you know, you'd be... I mean, you could do it with a fucking something a lot healthier for sure, yeah. you know, but I mean, but you sit down, you do nothing else, you smoke a cigar, you kind of enjoy, you know, you're mindful of what, while you're smoking it. I don't know. It's a nice, mm. I, I like it. Interesting. And something to, you know, I, and I've been actually getting into, um, back into, I used to drink a lot of rum and um, I've been kind of getting back into some fancy rums. Really? So, yeah, rum and a cigar. I've been kind of hmm. digging that at night lately. So Like what kind of rum when you see a fancy rum? Like, uh, like Methuselah and some of those? Yeah, actually, uh, that is one that I just had recently. Yeah. Um, and um, yeah, aside from that, to be honest, like I, when, I, when I was drinking a lot of rum, it, I lived in the Caribbean and I was drinking it because it was cheap as shit. And right. It was fucking everywhere. Yeah. And, and that's when I like realized that, all right, well, I, I do like rum. Um, and then, um, yeah, you know, just recently now that I've got, you know, I'm a human and I got a a fucking job and I can afford to buy a bottle of liquor. Like I'll go to the liquor store and see what's, you know, in liquor over the last five years has fucking exploded. Like every, every silo, every sort of type of liquor is specializing and you're seeing shitloads of it, you know? And I'm just getting fancy Those rums like Methuselah have been around for quite a while, but it's those like French control. It's like the French swooped in on the Caribbean. They're like, all right, it's time to have some seriously high fucking standards for this stuff. And we're going to show you how to like make the best shit. Yeah. So it's like the Methuselah and some of the other ones that were like French controlled Caribbean countries that were producing rum were like, you know... That's where it started. Up to huh? this really high standard, yeah. Okay, that's my understanding. Well, you know, you would know more than yeah. I would. I, the only reason I know that is because we encountered those at the Brandy Library in um, Oh, okay, Tribeca, and uh, I was drinking whiskey. But w- one of my good friends, Kevin, is really into rum as well. Similarly, and I was like, rum, ugh. you know, like at first, Bacardi. You know, yeah, Bacardi, you know, Captain Morgan's like you get <laughs> totally, that, yeah. like oh, uh, like we're a high school kids at a party or whatever, you know. But no, there's like they're amazing. Yeah, you know, as much so as any you know fine brandy or fine whiskey or some of those things. There's some really amazing rums that are well worth anyone's time. Takes me back a little bit, you know. Yeah. I got a connection to the that kind of liquor and yeah. So I mean, that's my thing, man. I'm gonna go home tonight. I'm gonna have a glass smoke of smoke a cigar and smoke have a fucking some cigar. Wow. Yeah, man. Crazy. <laughs> it's crazy. You're, it's you're like a baller <laughs> i'm a total fucking baller i'm a total fucking baller you should see me it's some shit my long hair my fucking cigars right. i'm doing it jesus you're like a fucking portuguese gangster <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's some badass shit but the neighbors are fucking running i bet yeah they're like putting their houses on the market don't want to live next to the portuguese don anymore don santos that's right yeah watch your shit all right, so this week uh, we're going to focus on read and listen. And for read, uh, we wanted to change it up a little bit, do something a little different, and we're going to talk about the three best short stories you've ever read. And uh, we'll spare you, listeners, um, our self-indulgence here, but we are going to um, pick just a, a short passage or a quick quote from each one and sort of read that to give a flavor. 
So you want to kick this one off, or you got something? I will, yeah, I do. Um, this was, uh, excuse me while I dig for my fucking reading glasses. Such an embarrassment, like, wearing these things around the office like a dick. Because um, my eye surgery went south. That's another, we're going to do a whole episode of <laughs> failed fucking eye surgery. Um, but, uh, we'll wait right. until your hair gets a little longer. <laughs> <laughs> no, seriously? Oh my god. Alright, no reading glasses. Fuck it. We're just gonna rough our way through this. Um, yeah, I, I think I was mentioning to you earlier, I was, this is a killer episode for me. Um, researching this was really, really fun. Not that I research everything, but, like, when I started digging in and thinking about, because that's a, that's a major fucking question. You're three favorite short stories ever. Yeah. Um, because for, you know, I don't know, for at least for me, short stories became were an early discovery for me, the form itself, and became something that um, I just started to dig into kind of early in my, like, adult life and my love of reading. I started getting into short stories pretty early and um, was lucky enough to get turned on to the best um, early on and fell out of it. Like I haven't read short stories as a habit in years. So I was psyched to go back in. Um, and I'll be interested to hear, cause I mean, you read more than I do. I'll be interested to hear if you have like modern or like newer sort of you know, stuff. I, I have to say, I, I probably could have thrown a lot of stuff on this list. There was a Tobias Wolf short story I read one time that was like, must've been three or four hundred words, that's um, Jesus. this guy's final thoughts as a bullet has entered his brain and is sort of bouncing around and it's kind of like triggering these memories. So it's like, not literally like a life flashing before someone's eyes as they die, but it's like the last moments and last thoughts that this guy has as this bullet is like rattling around inside his skull, just like decimating his brain. Holy shit. Really good. I mean, just like a really unique premise for a story. It was like, Really short. I read that in like a best American fiction, you know, of like those comps. I yeah, love those things. Yeah, one of those nineteen ninety seven or something like that. Yeah, those way things. Back. I remember when those first came out. I, the, you wait a year and they were a dollar. Yeah, I for I sure. bought those it, every year. Yeah, you can go to half price books and just like pick those things up like crazy. And they're killer. Yeah, I, I've got dozens of those. I love those things. And of course, there's you know Raymond Carver, and you could go to Hemingway, and um, there's some people, a couple people, you know. That, in the literary world that have just specialized in short stories. Yeah. Just massive. Raymond Carver's one of my picks. Yeah. I mean, for yeah, me, yeah. he's a master. Absolutely. Um, and I mean, he, Tobias, he influenced Tobias Wolf greatly. For sure. Tobias Wolf, I mean, I, he could very well be, I don't know a lot about Tobias Wolf. I know a little bit, but I know that Carver was a huge influence on him. Yep. Um, yeah. So was Hemingway. Hemingway. And so was Hemingway. Yeah. Hemingway was, I mean, obviously was an influence on all of them. Oh, fuck. You know what? God, I should have, there was, there's, I can't believe Hemingway isn't on my list. Three is rough, man. We're going to have to yeah. do, we're going to have to do, I mean, we're calling this our three favorite, but I, I feel like we should revisit this again. Do like your three favorite that you remember this week, because <laughs> honestly, like, because right. I, now that I think of it, like there's Hemingway shit that yeah, I, I, I didn't I, even contemplate for this. I, I basically, the way I picked it is I picked three that I, I think of often. They might not be the three best, but they're three that have obviously had some sort of a pro- profound impact on me because whenever I think I they I, I can't get them out of my head. I, lo- I you know what I'm glad to hear you say that because that's I did the same thing. 
Um, so let me dig in uh, to my first one. So, um, yeah, when I started thinking about, like, the the short story as, you know, like we're saying, like, what was, what are the ones that stick out to the most? And when I started, um, like, really discovering short stories, one of the first people I stumbled upon was T.C. Boyle. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Who, like you were mentioning, is a guy whose um, sort of stock and trade has been short stories. Right. He's a novelist, of course. Um, fiction. Does a lot with boxing and fighters. A uh, shitload. Yeah. Um, and some of the greatest stuff that, yeah, he's great with, um, I don't remember the name of his most famous boxing story. Do, do you it, did he do a Million Dollar Baby? Yeah. Oh, no. Did, no. Did no just, I don't think so. Really? No. No, he's a fucking smartass. I don't think he would have. I mean, I don't know, but I don't. I don't think he did. Huh? Because his stuff was like super. Um, it's. It's. I mean, he's. I if, his stuff is pretty dark. But. It's dark, but and if he's not comedic, then he's like really t- taking the piss on something. Like even if he's you know, not being funny. I don't know. At any rate. Um, you know, Paul Haggis wrote the screenplay for that. For some reason, I thought it was like based on a short story or something that he did. But I must be thinking of something else. Well, there's a very there's a very famous um, T.C. Boyle um, story about fighting that I, I don't remember what it is, but it's really great. And he's like um, he 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 paints these caricatures of people that are just. Um, <laughs> that are just fucking crazy. I'm gonna I'm gonna start actually before I talk too much about them. I'm gonna um, read a passage here. Um, he he reads um, he his stuff reads pretty. Um, it's a mouthful. Um, he, and he he another one of his loves is food. Right. Um, he he writes a lot about chefs. He writes a lot about. Um, like actually eating food, but um, he—I know he has a new book out of short stories, and I haven't read it. But I'm gonna—I'm gonna read a passage here. Bear with me; it's a little—you know—I've chosen shorter passages for the rest of these, but I, I do want to um, kind of talk about this first one. And this is a story that I love of his called "Modern Love," where he talks about—he um, enters the story um, at the beginning of uh, this brief relationship with a woman. And uh, they go on their first date, and it's um, it, it's very transactional. Um, and he describes like you know the cold handshake at the end of it and stuff. And and this uh, passage picks up at the their next meeting. So he starts um, the next section of this short story. On the second date, we got acquainted. I can tell. I can't tell you what a strain it was for me. This is the woman speaking. I can't tell you what a, what a strain it was for me the other night, she said, staring down into her chocolate mocha fudge sundae. It was early afternoon. We were in Helmet's old-time ice cream parlor in Mamaroneck, and the sun streamed through the thick frosted windows and lit the place like a convalescent home. The fixtures glowed behind the counter. The brass rail was buffed to a reflective sheen, and everything smelled of disinfectant. We were the only people in the place. What do you mean, I said, my mouth glutinous with melted marshmallow and caramel. I mean Thai food, the seats in the movie theater, the ladies' room, that place for God's sake. Thai food? I wasn't following her. I recalled the maneuver with the strips of pork and the fastidious dissection of the glass noodles. You're a vegetarian? I asked her. She looked away in exasperation and then gave me the full, wide-eyed shock of her ice-blue eyes. 
Have you seen the health department statistics on sanitary conditions in ethnic restaurants? I hadn't. Her eyebrows leapt up. She was earnest. She was lecturing. These people are refugees. They have, well, different standards. They haven't even been inoculated. I watched her dig the tiny spoon into the recesses of the dish and part her lips for a neat four-square morsel of ice cream and fudge. The illegals, anyway, and that's half of them. She swallowed with an almost imperceptible movement, a shudder, her throat dipping and rising like a gazelle's. I got drunk from fear, she said, blind panic. I couldn't help thinking I'd wind up with hepatitis or dysentery or dengue fever or something. Dengue fever? I usually bring a disposable sanitary sheet for public theaters. Just think of who may have been sitting in that seat before you, and how many times and what sort of nasty, festering little cultures of this and that there must be in all those ancient dribbles of taffy and coke and extra butter popcorn. But I didn't want you to think I was too extreme or anything on the first date, so I didn't. And then the ladies' room? You don't think I'm overreacting, do you? (laughs) So that's his... Kind of like he, he has, like I said, he he goes to extremes, and um, I think that passage is sort of uh, I don't know. It, it's it stuck out because I love that story so much. He's able to like he he dips into like regular life, but he explodes stuff into like the fantastic too, right. and he's so fun. Well, and it's, does such an adept job at making you feel disgust for this woman. Who's, oh, who's yeah. obviously a horrible person. Do you have any? Um, do you know? Do you know this guy? Have you ever read much of him? Yeah, yeah. I think I've read a couple of his short stories, and I, you know, have toyed with, I think maybe grabbing one of his novels at some point. Yeah, and, he's a good writer. Yeah, yeah. I think I'd heard either snippets of him on This American Life or something like that as well. So yeah, he sticks out with short stories for me. Like I, and, you know, um, my other two picks were Locks. There was no question. This one, um, I wavered between him and Bukowski, um, huh. and because Bukowski for me sits firmly in short story land, um, right? For sure. You know, I mean, again, kind of stock and trade. Like he was. Even his novels are super short. His novels are super short, and they're also dissected as as they almost live in sections, right? Um, so, but I'll be honest. When I went back in, and like, you know, all my books are in fucking storage so i when i wanted to go and look at stuff i you know i couldn't find it and i don't know bukowski um when i did start researching it and i bought a couple of kindle versions of it um and i looked at it i i nothing none of it held up right now and and i'm not going to say i'm not going to make the statement of bukowski does not hold up because I, right. he has to. I, I'm sure that he does. He's too important to me to not hold up. Right. But in my first sort of, I haven't read him in years. And when I first looked back, I was like, ah, fuck, none of this is doing it for me. Like, if I have to pick a passage that I'm going to talk about, none of this shit is doing it. And I don't know. I, he deserves another visit for sure. I mean, it, it's some, I don't know. Interesting. Yeah. T- talk to me. What do you got? So my first pick, uh, Whenever I think of short stories, immediately this one pops to mind is a short story called 310 to Yuma by Elmore Leonard. Oh my god, yes, great fucking call. Um, Holy shit. So the most recent movie remake of this is completely terrible. Terrible. I'll still watch it. I've, I've seen it five times. And they just add all this stuff to the story that doesn't need to be there. That's my most egregious thing. And also this Russell like, Crowe? 
Russell Crowe and um, uh, what's his name who plays the British actor who plays Batman and Batman Returns and fucking Christian Bale. Christian Bale, thank you. Christian Bale, Russell Crowe. They create this sort of like weird evolving false camaraderie between the two of them that completely shits on and ruins like the the short story. So for those that don't know, it's a a Western short story. It was written a long time ago at the the beginning of Elmore Leonard's career. Uh, He started off writing mostly Westerns for magazines. Um, And it uh, is the story, short story of uh, a deputy who arrives in town with a prisoner and he's, you very quickly learn he's, um, this prisoner is like sort of a gang or a crew leader. They recently, he, he and his crew robbed a train and someone got killed and he's basically trying to get this guy to prosecution, but his gang who is, are still mostly at large are trying to get him, get him and get him out. And if that wasn't enough trouble, uh, the town that, that they stop over in the brother of what the guy who was killed during this robbery they're there too, and they're also trying to kill this guy. So he's basically like trying to, you know, against all odds, get this guy on the three ten train to Yuma, and they just need to survive at this stopover in, in the this prison. Town. The prison's in Yuma. Uh, yep, the prison and like where, yeah, where the yeah, like or district court or whatever district court rather, is in yeah. Yuma. So yep. in order to get this guy to justice, he has to get him to Yuma. Um, so and uh, at the point they've just gotten just arrived on a stagecoach. They are kind of hiding in a hotel instead of going to the jail, which is the obvious point. Um, and the reason why he's alone is because they've, uh, in order to create a deception, they dressed a guy up as him and sent the, the marshal and the majority of the deputies, like basically on a wild, like as a red herring sort of. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so he's by himself with this guy. They've just gotten into this hotel. They're in a hotel room in the back. Um, and this is where, uh, a scene when they're just getting settled down in the hotel and it's close this, to the end, this right? prisoner whose name is Jim Kidd is like giving him a bunch of shit. Uh, yes. you know, just, tr- just making his, his life really hard. Uh, now this is, this is more towards the beginning. Okay. Sorry. Um, where, you know, he's just starting to, the trouble that he's facing in this town is just starting to mount. Um, this is like the kind of first trouble he encounters. There are no grips on the window frame. Standing with his side to the window, facing the man on the bed, he put the heel of his hand on the bottom ledge of the window frame and shoved down hard. The window banged shut, and with the slam, and with the slam, he saw Jim Kidd kicking off of his back, his body straining to rise without his hands to help. Momentarily, Scollin hesitated, and his finger tensed on the trigger. Kidd's feet were on the floor, his body swinging up, and his, and his head down to lunge from the bed. Scotland took one step and brought his knee up hard against Kid's face. The outlaw went back across the bed, his head striking the wall. He lay there with his eyes open looking at Scotland. Feel better now, Jim? Kid brought his hands up to his mouth, working the jaw around. Well, I had to try you out, he said. I didn't think you'd shoot, but you know I will the next time. <laughs> so anyways, that's just a brief, that's just as like the tension is starting to mount and the trouble and... You know, this guy is like, he offers him bribes, he offers him all sorts of stuff, he threatens his family, and it's basically like the story of this guy's honor. Like That's right, you know, yeah. It's like, he has decided, like, this is what he what he does, I'm an honorable man, and I'm going to get this guy to justice no matter what the cost, and we know he has a family and kids, we learn all the stuff, he threatens his family. He's a hired gun. And he's, 
yeah, he's basically like gets paid, you know, a pittance. And yeah. he's just doing this job because it's the right thing to do. So it's this interesting study in characters where you have this guy who is, it's like the moral man versus the amoral man who's willing to do anything to serve his self-interest. And it's just the way it's tightly written and plotted. Is, it's just really well done. You could pick any passage from that. Elmore Leonard's writing is, you know, he's famous for it being super tight and really awesome. And he delivers pretty much every single time. He's so great. Yeah, I read that story um, early um, in, when I had first discovered Elmore Leonard. And um, it's so great. And then shortly thereafter, um, saw the movie, um, the original movie, which is great. Yeah. It's really good, actually. Yeah, yeah. It's fantastic. Um, Yul Brenner's in it. I can't, uh, to be honest, I can't tell you anybody else. I don't remember anyone yeah, else. Yeah, I don't remember either. But, yeah, it's a famous – it was a, a famous Western because – Big hit. Yep, it was a really big hit. So. Yeah, and that was very early for him. It was. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. It was one of the things I think that helped establish him as a writer. Yeah, good one. Did you pick – is one of your other picks an occurrence in Owl Creek Bridge? No, but I always picked that. You did? Yeah. Yeah. Um, it, it didn't um, – I don't know how how it didn't um, enter my thinking, but, um, I mean, that fucking Ambrose Bierce, right? Yeah, um, absolutely. I mean, that is one of the most famous short stories of the modern period right? Um, ever, right? Yeah, that short story got me an A in comparative literature. I wrote a paper on that and got a, got a really nice grade. Really? Yeah. Nice. Yeah, I mean, it's that's amazing. I mean, the, the, um, the structure... Right is yep. is fucking incredible. Absolutely, it's super influential. Obviously, it, as well. oh, went God. on to influence a whole bunch of other movies and short stories. Memento, for God's yeah. sake. I mean, right. And I'm just kind of making that connection right now. I don't know if anyone else has Jacob's Ladder. Jacob's Ladder, yeah, for sure, was like basically a resetting of that exact story in the Vietnam War, as opposed to yeah, the Spanish American War. That's right. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, my shit's... Oh, actually, no, my shit didn't say modern. My next pick is old. Um, uh, so, yeah, my next pick um, is one... And so this... When I wanted to pick something, because I had um, a bunch of, like, people from, you know... I, I mean, who knows what fucking periods are. I don't know what is modern and what's old. I don't know, but... Um, you know, I was thinking Bukowski, and I was thinking... Like I said, Raymond Carver and T.C. Boyle. Um, but when I was thinking of older stuff, one of my favorite all-time writers ever is Anton Chekhov. Oh, yeah. Who's a master of absolutely. the short story. Absolutely. Um, and as I've said before, like um, I love to read plays. I love drama. And Chekhov, um, to me, is the master. I All of his plays. I feel like we have to do an episode of drama at some point. But... Um, I've read every every play Chekhov has written, and I've read probably most of his short stories. and And I didn't choose him just because um, I, I don't I, I haven't read it in a long time, and it, and it's not the kind of thing you can kind of brush up on and be ready to speak intelligently <laughs> about. You know what I mean? Right. And I didn't want to do it disjustice, do it an injustice here. And but Chekhov is. Everyone has been influenced. That write short stories, everyone has been influenced by Chekhov. For sure. Fucking everybody. Well, he's the famous one that created the rule about if there's a gun, 
in Act One, it has to go off by Act Three, right? That's it. Yes, yeah. that's exactly right. That's yeah, the, Chekhov created that, or like at least has the, the famous quote. It's mostly attributed to him. It is. Yeah. yeah. Yep. That's right. Um, so my pick was um, was for the yellow wallpaper, okay. Charlotte Perkins Gilman, um, which I'm sure you've read. I don't think so. You're kidding, really? No, I don't think so. All right. Um, well, um, it, it's a story of um, when it was written, which I think was um, right after the Civil War, it's the late 1800s. Um, it was um, basically fell in the genre of gothic horror. Um, it's, it's a story of a woman who um, is on the verge of a, of a nervous breakdown, and she is kind of sequestered for, at the time, which a Victorian healing method for hysterical women was the rest cure. Um, Hmm. And it was bullshit. It was basically a way of any woman that was sort of speaking her mind or saying anything, you know, out loud or having any sort of individualism was obviously hysterical and needed the rest cure, which is shut the fuck up and go spend two months in bed. Right. Um, so she wrote this story, um, which w- is a story of her devolving into um, psychosis and basically going crazy after being locked in this room for two months. Um, so her husband is a well-regarded physician and she is a frail wife that it, it, when you enter the story, it becomes obvious very early that she is emotionally and mentally battered through this relationship. Hmm. And, and I should say the interesting thing about the story is that when it was written, like I said, it, it felt squarely and did reasonably. It was pretty popular at the time because it um, was in the burgeoning sort of genre of of gothic horror. Right. Um, yeah, so yeah. you're Poe and all this stuff is happening at the yep. same time. And, um, and, uh, who, who's the other, um, gothic guy that was very popular then? Fucking super famous. Burnside, um, whatever, it doesn't matter. Um, anyway, she, um, is, when she wrote this story, it did really well it, as just on its legs as a horror story. And it wasn't until the, like, 70s where it started to get some critical notice as a feminist story where it was like, Hmm. oh, this is a woman that was, she was writing a story, yeah, to do well commercially and, and, you know, critically. But it was obvious that she was making a, a very clear statement about how absurd this sort of rest cure is. Right. Um, so at any rate, she, um, her well-regarded physician husband takes a summer home for um, – I, I don't know where it's set, but he takes a summer cottage and um, she needs a rest. So he's gone for the summer and she goes up to the third floor, which was a children's sort of playroom. Um, so as a result, being up on a third story, it has bars on the windows and she goes into this room and he basically locks her up there for two months. She, the, the um, you know, someone comes up and brings her meals, changes bed linens, you know, gives her sponge baths. She does nothing. She's locked in here for two months with the bars on the windows. And she begins to 
hallucinate. She's staring at this. There's an ornate yellow wallpaper hmm. um, that begins. That's all she looks at for 24 hours a day. And to, like you know, when you have absolutely nothing to do, you're laying in bed, and you know it doesn't matter if you go to bed at midnight or if you go to bed at 10 a.m. Who cares? Your life is just in this room. Um, and she goes crazy, but also finds her sort of redemption where she, in this, this incredible like weaving of story, fi- she identifies with these characters that are created in the wallpaper because she's staring at the wallpaper and these characters are created in there for her. But she identifies herself as a person that comes out of the wallpaper. Mm-hmm. Um, and she, through that process creates a person that she believes is herself and is worthy of, you know, of note and is a, is a real person. Um, there's a, and I'll read this short passage from there. Um, it's when she first like, um, starts to take note of this super complex wallpaper. Um, I don't, let me, let me read this. Um, she says, I never saw so much expression in an inanimate thing before. And we all know how much expression they have. I used to lie awake as a child and get more entertainment and terror out of blank walls and plain furniture than most children could find in a toy store. And I think that passage like sets up her like it sets up her framework of like her her head and her ability to be able to like you know create this world that she does. Yeah. But this well, passage um also the in, therein lies the root of her problems as well. Fucking so you're talking about a point in society where someone who is a woman who is intelligent and has imagination and has a strong point of view is that's exactly why you get the rescuer. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's a, that's a, spot on. Yeah, it's a it's a great story. Um, I I won't go too much further into it. Um, but like th- that passage though. Um, I don't know. It speaks to you on a bunch of different levels, which I think that story does across the board. So, the yellow wallpaper—that's a—that's um, a—it's a great story. Cool. So my uh, second story is um, from an author that I've mentioned on the podcast before, named Scott Lynch, who is a fantasy author who wrote *The Lies of Locke Lamora*, which oh, I think yeah. I told you about was the yeah, sort yeah. of like fantasy caper sort of story. Yeah. Um, he wrote for an, an anthology called Swords and Dark Magic, which, which is sort of a revisiting of a very specific type of fantasy story called um, The Sword and Sorcery, which is the person who pioneered that was um, Robert E. Howard, who wrote the Conan the Barbarian. Oh, wow. Like that basically, in the same way that Tolkien, you know, created the whole epic fantasy sort of genres, at least as credited with it. Or largely, it's largely attributed to him. Robert E. Howard created this like traveling swordsman sort of, you know, where there's okay. like a little less magic plays a, a little maybe less of a role in a lot of these stories. So, um, and what I love so much about this uh, short story, it's called In the Stacks, is so quickly in the short story, Scott Lynch is able to create such an imaginative world that's so different and so unique. Uh, it's like he's world building in the space of a short story and the world and the characters he creates are so unique and enthralling that most people can't do that in a thousand page novel in the space where he's doing it. Um, and this is, it's a fairly long short story, um, but it's really interesting. So I'm, I'm going to, uh, 
read a passage from the first couple of pages that sort of sets this up. Uh, Laszlo buckled the scabbard into his belt and covered it with his cloak. The armor still left him feeling vaguely ridiculous, but at least he trusted his steel. Thus protected, layered head to toe in leather, enchantments, and weapons, he was at last ready for the final challenge each fifth-year student faced if they wanted to return for a sixth. Today, Laszlo Gezera would return a library book. <laughs> so, uh, in, in this story, these kids are, they're like magicians, basically, and they're at this school, um, and there's this thing in this world that's called the Living Library, which is where all the, it's collected all of the magical knowledge from this world, and what the school asks is like, in order to pass from your fifth year into your sixth year, which is sort of like, you're at the point of, you know, becoming an advanced magician, that you understand the sacrifices that the librarians undertake working in this library day in and day out because it's this living library is full of, it's almost like uh, all this magic over time and the accumulation of it has almost created an artificial intelligence. So this library has created creatures and it has almost like a will of its own. And so basically they're going, uh, he's taking this traditional adventure story and he's putting it into the context of this library and the whole space of it and the whole, the adventure that they have to go on to get these. So it's, it ends up being these four students and um, these couple of instructors that go along as their guides. And the things that they encounter are so unbelievably unique and imaginative. Like, for example, at one point they encounter these uh, creatures that feed off of um, unknown words. So every time they hear a word that they've never heard before, these creatures grow in strength and size. No. So they're being threatened by these creatures, and they have to try to figure out how to unwit these cre- outwit these creatures that live in this library. And it's just unbelievably unique and enthralling. And I've tweeted at Scott Lynch before to be like, please, like, take these characters in this world and do more with this. There's even, like, a twist at the end that's very unexpected that you didn't see coming. And it's just like masterfully done and incredibly well written. Holy and, uh, shit! What an, a great idea for anyone who's into even remotely into fantasy. I can't recommend it highly enough. I found a online version where just some like fans and some amateurs had basically created an uh, like the audio version of the short story, but it's so poorly recorded and it's it's acted voice acted by amateurs that it's almost like <laughs> painful to listen to. I can't really can't necessarily it. recommend it. Not that this podcast is always professionally recorded and not painful to listen to. So, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, from somebody that knows yeah, the folly. Yeah. Exactly. So anyway, that's my second pick. What's so, the name of it? In the Stacks by Scott Lynch. That so, is so cool. And the, uh, the name of the anthology, which you can get on Kindle, is Swords and Dark Magic. So I think you can pick it up. There's a lot of other really great short stories in there as well. So that's such I, a I, cool I idea. Yeah. I love that concept. That's great. All right. Um, my last pick, like I said, Raymond Carver, um, he is, um, absolutely life-changing for me. Like, there's, there's before Raymond Carver and after Raymond Carver for me. Um, he, it was one of those moments where it was like, holy, all right, great, somebody else is living through crazy fucking shit, too, and, um... And it's okay. Like, right. that was a that was a realization for me. It was like, you know, I mean, I, I, I listened to punk rock and it was, but that would seemed like it was too, I don't know, this was so direct. And it was like, because he's talking about, like, situations that were happening to me, you know. Um, and there's one, I mean, every 
Raymond Carver short story I think is genius. Um, and his anthologies are, you know, um, what we talk about when we're talking about love. Yeah. Where I'm calling from. Where I'm calling from. Cathedral. Yeah. There's not that much. You could burn through all of Raymond Carver's stuff easily in like the beginning of a summer. Absolutely. No, there is not that much. Um, and he was a mess. Um, For sure. He, he um, you know, it was funny, like, and I, it's funny how you pair and you keep, you put things into sort of compartments when you discover them. Like I discovered Raymond Carver at the same time that I discovered Art Pepper. Hmm. Um, and Art, Art Pepper is a, a, a alto player, uh, West Coast cool. Um, and it was, it's just funny how like two artists, both West Coast fucking mess held together by their, their by their women right um tess gallagher yep. and held um raymond carver together and laurie pepper held art pepper together right um they would not have we we wouldn't have we wouldn't be able to enjoy their art if it wasn't for their for their wives right i feel like there was a lot of that including a lot of those um not just raymond carver but a lot of the poets and a lot of the men of that generation i kind of feel like they used it as as an excuse, almost like I'm the tortured genius, and you just need to deal with this, and you need to pull it all together. And what the fuck, you're totally yeah, right. It's it's there's something about it that's really messed up. Like in a way, you want to be like, wow, like the great woman behind the man. But in a way, it's like these men were just like grown men babies, and using the excuse of being an artist for like bad, irresponsible behavior, and just never growing the fuck up. You're absolutely absolutely right. And yeah. that's partially where our like whole notion, this like Western especially American society's, like, idea of, like, the tortured artist comes from, like, oh, you have to be, like, this tortured soul to, like, live, live this way and have your art this way. And if you don't drink, like, you can't be a great writer when, in fact, like, it was only the about the, the like, short phases of sobriety when someone like Raymond Carver actually got work done. That's right. Oh, yeah. He was, I mean, he's he was famously... Um, like unproductive when he was drunk and he was, he had a complicated relationship with his editor as well. Um, that was akin to a marriage and, you know, I don't know. Anyway. So what story did you pick? I, I, I chose, um, gazebo, which for me is, um, if it's not his best short story, I think it's his most, um, it illustrates him as a short story writer better than any for me anyway. Um, it's a story of a breakup. Um, he and his wife, um, are, um, they, they found this motel and, um, that needed managers. So they moved into this motel. It's in the Pacific North. It's in Washington somewhere, um, in South, Southern Washington, Yakima. Where where the fuck is Yakima? Yeah, that's in Washington. I know it is. I don't yeah. know where it is. Anyway, there, all of his stuff it's is by up there. Bend, probably. Yeah, who <laughs> fucking? I don't know. It's part of Oregon that you only hear about from people that know Oregon really well. That's it's exactly. Like, oh right. yeah, have you ever been to Bend? It's gorgeous. <laughs> no, no, I've never been. No, no. Is it like in the middle of Oregon or something? <laughs> it is. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Off of the freeway, some fucking weird hours. Um, but he's um, um, very. The Pacific Northwest is a big part of his storytelling. Right. Doesn't necessarily play that big of a part in this story but anyhow he and his wife uh find this motel that needs management assistance and they're like they're drunk so they're like oh well perfect um we get room and board and we get paid 300 bucks a month 
So this is perfect for us. They move in. She does the books. He does um, upkeep. Right. Right. So um, basically what happens is I'm going to read a few passages. It's a very short story. And in this, uh, I promise to keep this a bit shorter than talk about fucking yellow wallpaper, um, which I'm sure everybody, let me apologize now to everybody. If that was boring the shit out of you, well, I guess tough shit. It's a great fucking story. You should read it. Anyhow. <laughs> Um, he, he starts, um, the story, he says, um, that morning she pours teachers over my belly and licks it off. That afternoon she tries to jump out the window. And that's how he starts this story. And it it goes on to describe, so, you know, she's doing the books, he's fixing everything. She hires a, um, a, a maid, a housekeeper to clean the rooms and, he starts banging the housekeeper. Um, and he describes like how that goes on. Um, you know, and it's not, he doesn't fall in love with the housekeeper. He's just banging her. And, um, you know, and, and, you know, he's cheating on his wife and, and she, she discovers it. And the story is them breaking up as they're going through the, um, through the, the day. Um, he says this, this next passage, um, I think is so great. He says, I get down on my knees and I start to beg, but I'm thinking of Juanita. This is awful. I don't know what's going to happen to me or to anyone else in the world. He has this incredible, like, um, efficiency with his statements that I don't know what's going to happen to me or with anyone else in the world. It's so fucking good. It's so fucking good. So he, he, um, later in the middle of the story, he kind of flashes back and he says, then that Saturday morning, we woke up after a night of rehashing the situation. We opened our eyes and turned in bed to take a good look at each other. We both knew it then. We'd reached the end of something. And the thing was to find out where new to start. We got up, got dressed, had coffee, and decided on this talk. Without nothing interrupting, no calls, no guests. That's when I got the teachers. We locked up and came upstairs here with ice, glasses, bottles. First off, we watched the color TV and frolicked some and let the phone ring away downstairs. For food, we went out and got cheese crisps from the machine. There was this funny thing of anything could happen now, and we realized everything we had. I love that quote of when you're... Because he's describing this process, and for anybody that's gone through like a kind of a prolonged breakup like there's something about like going through it with the person that you're breaking up with mm-hmm. where you're like you're super sad but at the same time you're excited to be with this with your a friend and you're discovering like this new life that you're going to have now that you're leaving this relationship but you're also super sad because then you like realize that you're with this person that you're like it's I have to leave you to have this life that we're both super excited about it's in to in, in to hear him it was such a discovery for me this this shit let, let me let me read another passage here listen she goes you remember the time we drove out to that old farm outside of yakima out past terrace heights we were just driving around we we're on this little dirt road and it was hot and dusty we kept going and came to that old house and you asked if we could have a drink of water can you imagine us doing that now going up to a house and asking for a drink of water. Those old people must be dead now, she goes. 
side by side out there in some cemetery. You remember they asked us in for cake? And later on they showed us around and there was this gazebo out there. It was out back under some trees or something. It had a little peaked roof and the paint was gone and there were these weeds growing up over the stairs. And the woman said that years before, like a real long time ago, men used to come around and play music out there on a Sunday and the people would sit and listen. I thought we'd be like that too when we got old. Dignified. And in a place. And people would come to our door. I can't say anything just yet. Then I go, Holly, these things, we'll look back on them too. We'll go, remember the motel with all the crud in the pool? I go, you see what I'm saying, Holly? But Holly just sits there on the bed with her glass. I can see she doesn't know. I move over to the window and look out from behind the curtain. Someone says something below and rattles the door to the office. I stay there. I pray for a sign from Holly. I pray for Holly to show me. I hear a car start and then another and they turn their lights on against the building and one after another they pull away and go out in the traffic. Dwayne, Holly goes, in this too, she was right. Oh, so fucking good. It's so fucking good. He just, it's, um, I have this, I always have this picture of an Edward Hopper painting when I read his stuff Mm -hmm. because it's, it's bleak. But at the same time, super vibrant and colorful. Right. Like, I I don't know. It's just a yeah. connection Absolutely. I have. It's fucking so good, man. That's awesome. Ugh. So my last pick is kind of an obscure book. I just dug through the house today trying to find this book. At one point I had found it. But now because we're trying to clean out and get rid of all this stuff out of the house, including a bunch of old books. Uh, unfortunately, this book doesn't exist on Kindle. You can find it on Amazon. It's been reprinted. It's called... Um, we're in Trouble by Christopher Koch, C-O-A-K-E. Uh, came out originally in 2005, and it's all, all a series of short stories. I don't know if this guy's Christopher Koch has actually written anything besides short stories, but there's one short story. Unfortunately, I can't find it, and it's not on Kindle, so huh. I'm going to read the excerpt that I found in this review for it. Someone was raving about it, but all the stories are extremely dark, and... When I read them, I, it was just this thing of like story after story. It was like, I've never seen someone writing about this situation before. Like there's one, a father, it's a bit about a father and a son, but they're running cross country because uh, the dad doesn't have custody, but he's kidnapped this kid. Okay. And they're going across the country to like hide out in the West. Um, I'm going to read an excerpt from one. This is, uh, and this sort of shows you the sort of like uh, tension that's kind of just in all these stories. This is uh, a scene where a boy is playing catch with his dog on a cliff. Then I gave the ball a stronger toss, and it bounced too close to the edge, and I saw it messed up. It was going to fall off. Gale was too far away to get to it, but he went for it anyway. The ball went over the edge, and he didn't slow down. He was too keyed up. I'd gotten him too excited. I shouted out, no, trying to get him to stop, but he didn't until he was just at the edge. Then he realized where he was, and he skidded in the dirt and went sideways. And then his back paws went off the edge of the cliff, and he was stuck there, hanging on his front paws and his elbows, trying to push himself up over the edge. Oh, man. So Jesus. the story that I, re- I read in this book that I just can't get out of my head, and unfortunately it's not excerpted in any of the reviews that I looked for. Um, I'm just going to have to buy it, suck it up and buy this book again. Um, is the story about this woman whose husband is like a, a famous climber like he's really into climbing and he 
and a team are on an exhibition. I, I'm not I'm not sure if it's Everest. I want to say that it's Everest, but they they're lost in a storm. And she's kind of like tells the story of their relationship when they first got together. And at first she thought it was really exciting that he was this famous climber and this adventurer and taking all these risks. And um, then as they're like, they got married and they have a, now have a young son. Like she's just, he can't give this up. It's like his passion, but it's kind of tearing her apart. And currently they are, we're making an ascent and there was a storm and no one has heard from him. And so she's waiting to hear back. And there are these scenes where she goes out to find her son. They live out in the middle of nowhere on all this land. And her son is, like, obsessed with climbing. And she comes out and finds him, like, climbing, scaling up this, like, tiny sort of rock face. And she's just, like, it's this, like, terrifying moment for her because she's, like, I've, I've entered into this life with this person that I can't control who's doing this and maybe is dead even at this moment. And now my son is doing this as well. And like, what have I gotten myself into? Like both the men that I love in my life are like, Oh God, you know? Yeah. These, what a terrible feeling. Obsessed with risk. You know, like he's going to be just like his father. And there's this whole thing about like, um, right at the end of the story after she's like, you know, like has these, these fights and these arguments and she's trying to like, wrestle her son back to the earth and get him down the she hears the phone ringing in the house but she doesn't know whether or not it's someone calling to say that he's dead or he's alive cut the shit so yeah it's really all the stories are like like that i was just like every story in this book i was like god i don't know if i can i can only like read one of these every three or four months yeah because it's like such so emotionally powerful and just like how'd you find this guy um I, I think I saw it recommended on a blog or something at one point, and I picked it up, and they're just unbelievably powerful short stories. How old are We're in old? trouble. Christopher Koch. I think it came out in 2005, 2006, oh, so you may be like 10 years old. We're in trouble. We're in trouble. Christopher Koch. Yeah. Fucking hell, man. Highly recommended. They're pretty long for short stories. I think the shortest is 30 on average. They're probably like 40 to 60 pages. Okay. So you're not. we're not talking like... You know, short, short stories. Yeah. But um, every everyone in the book, is it is a very, very solid book of short stories. Fucking hell, man. All right. So, nice one. All right. So that uh, concludes read. Now we're going to go to listen. Yeah. And so uh, this week for listen, the theme we wanted to talk about was uh, your three three live concerts that uh, stick out in your memory that made, made a distinct impression on you. Yeah, so, it's it's a great yeah. like uh, this is um it's a good one. I've been um very lucky in my life. I've had, you know, ran a rock and roll club for years, worked in rock and roll for years. So, I've seen literally thousands of shows. Wow. Some not is <laughs> somebody I mean I worked there so some right. of them you're like you just you just get what you get fucking hell yeah. yeah and you may hate it you may love it but you know I've seen a lot lot a lot of fucking shows and um yeah and I, I consider myself very very blessed honestly for having such a great exposure and this was in San Francisco in the you know in the early, late nineties through um sort of through the 2000s, um, you know, I saw thousands of fucking shows. I mean, just all the time. So, um, I guess I'm going to, I'm going to start with, though this did not occur during that, um, during that time, I am, I'm going to start with, um, uh, 
my a show that happened last year, end of last year, um, by my favorite band of all time, The Replacements, um, which was here in um, in the Twin Cities. They played at the Midway Stadium in St. Paul, and um, they had just started that tour um, at that time. I think they had done probably four or five dates, and um, I had a bunch of friends from all over the country come into town for it. I had probably seven or eight people here in town to come see the show. And it was really great. Like, I think, you know, shows are, you know, are, it's one thing to go see a show, but it's one thing to go see it with people that are your family. And, you know, and now that we're older in life, family gets spread wide and far, man. I mean, you know, my people are all over the country. And, um, and it was so great to have everybody come to my new home because they hadn't been here yet. Right. And they get to see my house, where I live, where I work, meet my son, and go see our favorite fucking band of all time. It was so, so fucking good. That's awesome. Oh, God. It, it was just so great. Um, so I'm going I'm to play a clip. So I was lucky. Um, it, well, I was lucky. You're not so fucking lucky because you got to listen to this shit recording. But, um, I, you know, there was a mo- the, the entire set, the whole thing was fucking amazing. But they closed with Unsatisfied. Um, anybody that's a Replacements fan knows the song. And there was this feeling at this show where, um, you know, when I was young and going to see punk rock shows, there was this incredible feeling of, like, looking around in the shared, like... And you saw tons of shows as a young punk. Yep. And you'll share the sentiment where it's like, you look around, it's like, it's not just listening to music, like, you're sharing somebody with something with everyone in the room. And you're feeling the same thing that I'm feeling, and we're connected with something like that elevates the experience, right? Yep, it makes it absolutely fucking amazing. And it was like when I first discovered that. That's why I fell in love with punk rock. It was like you know, this isn't going to see fucking Julian Lennon or In Excess <laughs> or like those are like a couple of my early shows. You know what I mean? Right. You're like, what the fuck is this? Like this is bullshit. I you don't. Know? I don't really have any of that because the first live music I ever went to see was like a local punk rock band in Madison at a community center. Really? So I just went like straight into punk rock. I didn't really, it wasn't until later that I went to like stadium shows or whatever. Yeah. It's so I, when I was a kid, like I hadn't, I had a cool aunt that brought me to some shows. That's cool. Yeah. It was great, yeah. you know, but it was not like, you know, I'm certainly not sharing anything with the people next to me at great woods in Mansfield, Massachusetts, you know? Right. Um, but you know, anyway, I had not felt that camaraderie and sense of like we're all kind of in this together at a show until last year. I hadn't felt it in so long. And, you know, I'm in my 40s now and you look around and it's like everybody else is too. And when he's like, oh, God, like hearing him sing Unsatisfied, it was like it was the moment all of us old fuckers had been waiting for for fucking years. And it was like in hearing him sing that. It was like I had all of my people there and everybody else there. We've been waiting for this for fucking years and it happened and it was oh
Oh, God. It, I mean, these live recordings are not good, but hearing him sing that live, holy shit. D- definitely yeah. one of the greatest shows ever for That's me. That's awesome. Yeah. Cool. So my first pick, um, it's interesting because two of these uh, happened in Madison. Um, one uh, was when I lived in Madison. So we were uh, really into this band that kind of came out of the sort of same Chicago scene as like, Tortoise in June of 44, there was like a classical project called the Rachels or Rachels. I don't know if you've heard, heard of this. No. Um, it's just a, a trio. Um, and this woman, Rachel, plays uh, like is a classically trained pianist. Uh, I think there's a cellist and a violin. Um, and they play original classical music, like they compose classical music. Really? Um, and they wrote this record called. Uh, music for Egon Schiel or Egon Schiele, um that was the soundtrack for a play. Um, and they just released it. I didn't know until we went to see them live. So what's interesting is they played the record um, in order. They didn't change it because it's, it's supposed to be a soundtrack. Yeah. Um, the only time I've ever seen someone do that was a Fugazi show for In on the Kill Taker. Killer. I think and they just played the record, but I don't think it, it hadn't come out yet. So when you got the record, you were like, oh, this is like the live performance that so I saw. Um, so we went to uh, – I went with my good friends, Kaya, Caitlin. I, I think uh, my friend Kevin was when also was there. This was um, early 90s. Okay. Like – probably 92, 93. Okay. Um, there was a, a space like in, like right at the edge of campus called the Catacombs, and it was an old church, and they turned it into sort of like a community center. But So we go into this church. Everyone sits down in like the chairs, and I think there were still some pews left even, and the whole thing is candlelit. So you're in this church, and you have this like people playing these unbelievably gorgeous classical Fuck. pieces – and it's just the whole – it was like the perfect venue in, oh which, in which to see this performance. So um, I'm going to play a quick track. Uh, this is called Family oh, Portrait. Killer. Uh, the Rachel's Music Free Ganshiel.
it's it's like my go-to record for a really nice dinner party. Oh God! I've got yeah. it on both both vinyl and CD. Throw it on the record player, play it at a dinner party, and all your guests think you're sophisticated as hell. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you got them fooled. That's killer, man. Yeah, it's really good. All, all the records are are really good. This was, I think, the second or third record that they released. Maybe the second record, uh, and we just all were in love with the records that these people were doing and went to see them perform a couple times, both Did in, you? in Chicago and in Madison. This was, like, by far the best, perf- like I said, perfect venue, perfect place for them to perform because normally they were playing in these, like, it was they were this weird classical breakout because they'd come out well, of... Well, there's no so world like, for them. You go to see them at, like, a traditional rock club and the acoustics are not right <laughs> and people are fucking talking at the bar and it's just not the right venue to see music yeah. like that, so... This was perfect. That's killer, man. Yeah. Well, oh, I, I got to check them out. That's a that's a good one. What a cool show, huh? Yeah, absolutely. Fucking A. Nice one. All right. Um, my second pick, um, you know what? Fuck it. I'm not, I'm not going to say anything. I'm going I'm to play it, and then I'm going to talk about it after. That is the late great Dizzy Gillespie. Right. Um, that's Caravan. Um, th- I could not find the um, the show that I saw him at. I couldn't find he. I saw Dizzy at Mechanics Hall, which is um, one of. It, I don't know. It, it's pre Civil War, so eight, it was built in eighteen fifty or so in Worcester, Mass. Fucking good old Worcester. Hello, Worcester. <laughs> Wormtown. Um, and um, so this was a, a super important show to me. I um, grew to love jazz from my family, my Uncle Dave and my cousin Eric are musicians, and mm-hmm. they still work mm-hmm. in music now, um, family music company. And um, we I learned to love jazz through them and then through friends at college. And, and right when I was, like, learning about Dizzy Gillespie and really developing a deep appreciation for for jazz, um, it, it seemed a very distant fucking thing. It was like, well, Bop is, you know, 40 years old yep. at this point. And where am I going? I'm not going to see any fucking jazz shows. I don't know. You know what I mean? Like, I, I know friends that play in the music department and play in the – have – they're studying jazz and stuff, but I don't know. I'm not seeing, I'm not a part of the fucking scene, not by a stretch. Um, and it was so far removed and it seemed very studious to me because the only mm-hmm. people I knew that were doing yep. it were students. And so it, I had no connection to it. But when uh, Michael Dave took me to see Dizzy Gillespie, it was, the, Mechanics Hall is f- one of the greatest um, spots to see music in America. Hmm. Um, and... And, and I should say, like, depends on what the fuck you're seeing. You don't want to see, you don't want to see Minor Threat there. But, you, you know, <laughs> you want to see Dizzy Gillespie there. You want to see, right. you know, um, he is on the list of people you do want to see there. And it was just, 
to be there with my uncle Dave, who I love so much, and my cousin Eric, and and to um, just to see it live, and I was fucking blown away. And then it was like, you know, he he seemed, and I knew of the lore of Dizzy Gillespie, and I knew of his place in history, and I knew all about him. And had listened to all of his recordings. I was an enormous fan at the time. And I still am huge, but at the time I was like super into him and listening to him all the time. And then you go and see this larger than life, like holy fuck, this person that is creating, making fucking history. And then we stuck around after the show and I fucking met him and shook hands with him and talked to I mean talked. Wow. I didn't know what the fuck to say to him. Yeah. It was a yeah, yeah. uh, I, you, what do you say yeah. to a god, right? Right. And met him, and he signed a, a a photograph, and I was just like, it was fucking amazing. It wow. was fucking amazing. So got, I shook, saw Dizzy Gillespie and shook his fucking hand. That is... You don't get much better than that. Fuck no, man. That's fuck amazing. No. Yeah, it was a good one. Cool. So my second pick also has a bit of a story with it. Nice. Um, so we were all uh, living in Madison still at this time, but... Ironically, for this one, this one actually took place in Chicago, which is part of the story. Because uh, my friends, I didn't have a car, and uh, uh, my friends in Rainer Maria were on tour at the time, uh, and they had left me to watch their apartment. And part of that was also uh, my friend Caitlin's car, <laughs> and which I by no means had any sort of permission to take. So this guy that was a mutual friend of ours, Robert, called me up and said, "Hey, Sonic Boom." from Spaceman 3 is playing like in his project ear experimental audio research. He's playing at the empty bottle in Chicago. We have to go. And it was, and he was like, I've been looking at bus schedules and yada, yada, all this stuff. And I was like, well, you know, he's like, I don't know if the bus is going to work. I don't think so. So somehow we got around to him convincing me. And it took a lot of convincing that we should take Caitlin's car (laughs) She had yes. this like red, like Mark three or four Jetta, Volkswagen okay. Jetta. He was like, "Well, we'll take it," because I was like, "It was a manual. I did, I couldn't even drive a manual." And I was like, "Well, <laughs> you know, I can't." He was like, "I'll drive. I can totally drive a manual. Like, no problem. We'll just take it down. We'll go to the show. We'll come straight back. No problems." Well, we do get down to Chicago. No problems. I'm fucking sweating it the whole time because yeah. I do not have permission to right. take this car. And if something happens, we're Fucked. Right. <laughs> and we're trying to find the whiskey bottle. This was before navs and, you know, phones and Google yeah, Maps yeah, yeah, or any right. of that shit. Neither of us know this part of Chicago. And at one point, he's like looking around, looking at the addresses, and he rolls straight through a red light at this major intersection. I'm just like, I'm like, Dude. here it is, right here. We are <gasps> fucked. And luckily for us, there was no other traffic. I don't think he ever even realized he rolled straight through the red light at the intersection. You're furious. I, I was less less so furious and just like thanking God that nothing happened. Yeah, yeah. You know? So we get to the empty bottle, uh, which ironically later I saw Ryan and Rhea play at like years oh, after really? when I lived in Chicago. Um, so we get to the empty bottle, sit through. I don't even remember if there was an opening act. There might not have been. Like, I don't know who opens for like experimental audio research. Maybe there was like a DJ or something. Or I think right. there was actually maybe like a – local sort of experimental like fuzz rock or who knows. Anyways, if there was an opener, I clearly don't remember it (laughs) because this 
show made such a fucking impact on me. So he had this crazy setup. It's just him, one guy, but he had all these um, crazy kind of effects and delay pedal things, and he would just build these sort of like sonic landscapes over time. So we'd do these things like, I remember the thing that just like blew our mind was he took a like cello bow and he played a cymbal, like the cymbal with this cello bow and like recorded and looped it and created this just like crazy sound. It was one of the most, it was like watching someone compose music live right in front of you and build this like electronic and ambient music. And it was un believable and incredibly genius so when i think i think about things like that and then i think about things like girl talk now where a guy gets yeah. on stage and like i like girl girl talk for what it is but yeah me too he's like get, dude gets up on stage presses play on itunes and like dances around like an idiot and then you have someone like this who's literally like composing unique soundscapes that are different every single time in front of you and it Ugh. was just unbelievable so i'm gonna play um an experimental audio uh, music track. This is called uh, Delsid from Millennium Music. So the idea that in this day and age, no one would go up and even play any of that stuff live. It would all be sequenced off a laptop or That's something right, like that. That's right, yeah. So the idea that here's this guy using all these um, old synths and sort of analog things to, you know, construct this music live is just crazy. Uh, we'll probably never see anything like it again. Maybe at some point someone will be like, you know what? We should go back to using yeah. all these analog things and composing all this shit live and doing crazy stuff. It's It's like... Um, you know, seeing DJs kind of put together some stuff, even a lot of them don't make stuff live anymore, but <laughs> I know, I know. So yeah. what a cool thing to see live yeah. though, because it doesn't like, you know, it's one thing to listen to it, which, you know, it's not for everybody. Um, but to see it, ha- like even people that would be like, what the, f- there's no fucking way I'm listening to that. Yeah. Like if you were at the show, you'd be like in watching it get built, like you say, and layered. Right. That is something. It's a different experience. It's sure. completely yeah. different. Yeah. So we got back in the car after the show, drove back to Madison in the middle of the night, put some gas in Caitlin's car, and I, I think I told Kaya, yeah, you know, at, at some point I think I confessed up. I fessed up maybe like two years later. I don't know if I ever told Caitlin. <laughs> so if she listens to this, this might be the first time she ever hears about it. Um, <laughs> I love it. So anyway. That that was the story about our trip to Chicago. Nice. See experimental audio research. Oh, I love it. I love it. All right. My last pick um, is uh, one I'll never forget. Um, one of my favorite bands of all time is Big Star. Mm. And um, they, you know, 
I discovered them after they had stopped playing. So, you know, Chris Bell died in the 70s. He died in right. the late yeah, 70s. Yeah. Um, and then, um, you know, Chilton got um, – he, he got – the guys from the Posies together in the mid '90s. You got Stringfellow yep. and John Auerbach, you know, mm-hmm. from the Posies into the band in the mid '90s, um, and they toured a little bit. I think I never saw them then, um, but in 2007, um, Big Star played at the Fillmore in San Francisco. And it wasn't like they were kicking off a tour and going off to. This was that was the only show they played that year. Wow. Yeah, and um, so this was so that was two thousand seven, two thousand five. I remember um, it was Katrina, and mm. I don't know if you remember this, but there was like a a rumor that Chilton had died in Katrina because he lived in New Orleans. Jesus. And, um, and there was like, and it was all over everything. Everybody was text. I don't know if we were texting at that point. Yeah, we were texting, but it was that the rumor spread like wildfire and it was like in all over the place. It was like, fuck, Alex Chilton's fucking dead. And you're like, oh my God, you're kidding. He died in a fucking hurricane. You're kidding. And then it was just, I don't know how it started, but it was a complete fucking lie. Thank God. Um, so in 2007, um, my friend's Oranger um, opened for for Big Star, um, and yeah, it was at the Fillmore, and it was fucking amazing, man. I mean, seeing you know they, they recorded their their you know their most famous record, um, Radio City, was in number one. That's kind of released as the same thing. Right. Yeah, um, yeah, that was nineteen seventy three. Like that's yeah. fucking ancient. For sure. Really old. And um, to be able to see, like, the guy, one, you know, they all kind of wrote this stuff together. That was the incredible thing about that band is yeah. everybody could sing, everybody could write songs. Um, but to see Alex Chilton fucking sing 13, it was uh, never, like, the fucking goosebumps and the hair on the back of your neck the entire time. It was a once in a fucking... For me, it was once in a lifetime. Um, and this here's here's the recording here. I'm going to play a little bit of it. I mean, Big Star, if you don't know Big Star, you you got to go figure them out. They've influenced everyone. There isn't, there's a documentary on Netflix about Big Star and the whole origins of Big Star. It's great. Yeah, it's, it's a really, really good. good movie, yeah. Um, yeah, that's a great place to start. Watch that movie and check them out. And it's just, it's fucking perfect. Like, there's... There's Big Star and there's the replacements and like I don't know. There's everything else is next, you know. But here's here's um from yeah, from the Fillmore. Uh Big Star.
Well, you've all, you've all, everybody's heard. Well, maybe not everybody, but they they played all the hits, man. It was killer. I mean, Chilton, um, he died three years later. Um, I think it was, I think it was cancer. Um, but that was, that was, it. that was fucking big star. You cannot forget yeah, that. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. All right, so my last pick uh, also happened. This was a, a concert I saw in Madison, but I was living in Chicago at the time, and I drove up to go with my little brother. Um, and I, I owe a big debt of gratitude to my friend Pascal, actually, for introducing me to this musician. The first time um, I uh, ever heard Vic Chestnut was my friend Pascal covering one of his songs. Vic Chestnut is obviously now dead as well, died, mm-hmm. committed suicide. Um, and a rough life, obviously, Ooh, you know, from yeah. the, the alcohol related accident he was in that put him in the wheelchair and then living his life in the wheelchair and brilliant musician. Um, and this tour, he was touring with Christian, Kristen Hirsch. Um, and they actually at the concert, uh, both played songs together and it kind of accompanied each other, but then they would take turns going back and forth. I'm not a huge Christian, Kristen Hirsch fan. Um, Christian is uh, I don't I don't know is like really into her, I don't know really her. into her. Um, yeah, I'm trying to think of what the band that she's famous. I mean, she does solo stuff now too, obviously. But it was came up in a band. I like I said, wasn't familiar with her stuff. Yeah. it was a good. Um, she was good accompaniment too. They paired well together. They're obviously friends. Yeah. Um, but I found myself constantly just being like, okay, like be done with your song because I want to hear Vic Chestnut now. <laughs> yeah. But um, he, he was amazing. He both played guitar and played the piano and sang. Um, it was really interesting to see when he played the piano, he would like take his leg and set it on the pedals, you know, because he doesn't have any feeling in his leg or can't control his leg. So he really? just kind of set his foot on the pedal and then play the whole time, then move his foot. Really? At, at, wow. In the end. Um and he, he's super funny, just like a really dark but dry sense of humor. Um, so I'm going to play my favorite record of his is a record called West of Rome. Um, and this was also coincidentally um, possibly the song that Pascal first played um, when I heard him. This is a song called Bug from West of Rome. <laughs> Shellers we leave our little savior Daughters of the American Revolution Striper loves Jesus and I love a girl Against my better judgment Cause I feel like a squirrel My roommates, they got married And I booted up and a friend of ours told me that I was disgusting. My roommates, they got married, and I booted up. And a friend of ours told me that I was disgusting. While Holly's camped to the edge of South Carolina, we had to stay travel just to free a man from China. A hotel full of Packers' panties. And a front porch field with greasy, greasy greens. Anyway, so for me, you know, whether whether or not it's 
I just get this. It always conjures this image for me of someone, you know, walking around a small town in the south and seeing all this stuff both written in the concrete and written around in the town and just all the, like, different messages and things that you encounter, all the people you meet. Um, and I just love the language he uses in that, oh, too, that yeah. I, I booted up, you know, and my friends oh, told my me how I am disgusting. Yeah. Oh, my roommates, my, my roommates got married and I booted up. Um and the yeah, striper loves Jesus, but but I love a girl. Yeah, <laughs> Br- brilliant lyrics, like super funny, but also very poignant at the same time. And um, yeah, it just like conjures this image for me. Um, and uh, it's interesting. He was obviously in the same music scene. All those people kind of coming out of Georgia, you know, the same you know scene that REM came out of. And he he played with. Uh, yeah. Michael Stipe and did some stuff with Michael Stipe and I think he was you know similar to people like Lucinda Williams one of those musicians that you just never feel like never gets their due or never quite gets enough credit like a musician's musician yeah sort of um, and never for some reason never has the the mass appeal that you know leads them to stardom but it, yeah in a, in a selfish way you're almost glad right I mean of course you want yeah. success for people that you love and respect but yeah, it's interesting. I was just thinking about that because as I went to, you know, find those experimental audio research tracks on Spotify, like the track plays were all under a thousand. And in a way, it's like when Jesus. you're young, you're like, oh, yeah, I'm the only one who knows about this. And isn't that great? And then in the end, I was just like, fuck. Now, now when I see that, I'm just like, God, people should, you know, Beyonce tracks have like 180 million plays. And fuck this sake. has like less than a thousand Fuck me. it's like yeah of course it doesn't have the same sort of mass appeal but at the same time like people should seek out more interesting stuff right yeah and somebody like that like vic chestnut going to see a show so there there's you can listen to it and it's amazing right but when you see somebody like that um it's guys like that that leave a little bit of themselves every time they play so being in the same room with a guy like that that's playing there's something that doesn't come across in a recording. Like seeing guys like that play live, that's how he cut his teeth was playing shows. For sure. And that, seeing that shit live, there's no, there's nothing like it, right? All right, well, we better wrap this one up. Fucking hey, man, yeah. So, as always, a special good looking out thanks to Kaya Fisher for all the audio engineering love. Uh, thanks to you for listening. You can find us online at glopodcast.com. You can email us at goodlookingoutpodcast at gmail.com. And you can, for some reason, if you ever wanted to, communicate with us on Twitter at, at glopodcast. Uh, we would love it if you would go on iTunes and uh, give us a little feedback in the iTunes store. That would be greatly appreciated. And thanks for listening. Thanks, everybody. See you.